Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The other week, Reveal reporter Laura Morell did something a lot of us are doing these days. She made a video call. But she didn't use Zoom or FaceTime or House Party. She was using a video visitation app to connect to a group of men at the Pine Prairie Immigration Detention Center in Louisiana. The app's name is Getting Out, which is almost too fitting. Not only is it one of the few windows to the outside world for many immigrant detainees, today they were using it to hold a kind of protest press conference. And Getting Out is exactly what they were demanding. Hola. Hola. On the screen were men in white T-shirts with gray sweaters, packed into a tiny dorm lined with bunk beds. And they were holding up these white blankets because they don't have access to paper to put together, you know, like regular signs you'd see at a protest. ¿Qué dice el cartel? The blanket signs were washed out by the bright fluorescent lights, so they took turns reading them to the screen. Por favor, ayúdennos. Somos humanos. Please help us. We're human beings, they said. Someone help us. Someone hear us. No queremos morir por el COVID-19 encerrado. We don't want to die locked up of COVID-19. There are more than 2 million people in prisons, jails, and detention centers across the United States. While the government tells those of us on the outside to stay away from each other to avoid spreading the coronavirus, people who are locked up are forced to be together. And the first outbreaks and the first deaths are already happening. The men who have been video chatting with Laura from the detention center, they came to the United States to request asylum. They ended up in danger because they were looking for safety. One of those men is Manuel Rodriguez Ruiz. Manuel is very, uh, like, despite the situation that he's in right now, he was always smiling. Like, he always greeted me very kindly. Hola. Hola. <laughs> He came from Cuba, and back home, he used to be a bartender, so he uh, picked up some English while serving tourists. Hello, uh, what are you from? Uh, this is my name is Manuel. This is the menu. In the last couple of years, he was facing increased harassment from government authorities on the island because Manuel was uh, pretty vocal about his opposition to the Communist Party. He told me that he had been harassed and assaulted a couple times, which forced him to make the decision to, to leave Cuba and come to the United States. Why the United States in particular? Because he has a girlfriend here. The first memories. <laughs> I see his smile and his eyes, and yeah, he's special for me. Her name is Mire, and they met while she was on vacation in Cuba. Manuel leaves Cuba. He travels all the way to the U.S. border, where he asks for asylum. And once he's in custody, he calls his girlfriend, Mire. Uh, he called me and, and says, me, I am here in the United States. Do you remember that first phone call when he was detained? Yes, I, I remember. Uh, but at this moment, I don't have a, a fear. because Mire I, I says that she wasn't scared. She thought that Manuel would be released right away. 
And why did Mireille think Manuel would be released right away? Because that's how it was. So it used to be that asylum seekers would arrive at the border and after a few days they would be released with a court date. And even if they did end up in ICE detention, they could be released under something called parole. But under the Trump administration, that's not really happening anymore. Hmm. So in the region where Manuel is being held, the Southern Poverty Law Center is suing because the percentage of people being released dropped to near zero. And the number has slightly improved in the last few months since the SPLC got involved with this lawsuit, but the number is still in the low double digits. This is an incredible, surprising change. One of the lawyers in the case is Victoria Mesa Estrada. When we know that 10 years ago, 90% of the individuals were being granted parole, we are still way behind where the numbers should be. So there's been a huge drop in how many people are getting paroled out of immigration detention. Where did that leave Manuel and his girlfriend, Mire? Manuel has actually applied for parole multiple times, and he's been denied each time. He don't like to uh, give parole. <laughs> you mean yeah. ICE. ICE doesn't like to give parole. Yeah. Manuel is in Louisiana, and Mire is in Florida, and all they have right now is phone calls and video chats. It's very, very hard situation. And now, on top of that, you've got the coronavirus. Yeah, this has been incredibly stressful for the both of them. When I arrived to the United States, the coronavirus, the first case, I, I think, oh my God, imagine all the persons inside with bad condition, with bad cleanliness, 70 persons, 80 persons together. It's not good. And their worries are actually becoming sort of a reality now because we found out recently that one person tested positive inside the detention center where Manuel is being held. He hasn't heard much from officers inside, and so he's just doing his best to wash his hands and make sure that he covers his mouth with his T-shirt whenever he has to step outside of his room. Um, I heard from another detainee who works in the kitchen that he has to wipe down the tables in the cafeteria area, and he's not provided with disinfectant. He's literally using a cloth that he wets with water, and that's it. That's all they have. We're hearing the same reports in other detention centers around the country. So lawyers around the country are trying to get people out of ICE detention, and among them is Victoria. They filed an emergency motion to try to get the release of asylum seekers uh, across Louisiana and a few other states. Because one of the criteria that is identified on the ICE parole directive from 2009 is that individuals should be released under parole if it's in the public interest of this country. And certainly, stopping the coronavirus spread, it's in the public interest of the United States. So we're asking the judge to proactively order ICE to do their job. And what's ICE's response to all of this? I mean, what have they been doing to deal with the coronavirus outbreak? So in the last few weeks, ICE has taken some actions. They've canceled social visits at detention centers. They've scaled down on arrests. And we also learned that they're starting to release detainees who would be vulnerable to the virus. And as of the end of March, they've released 160 people. But you also have to keep in mind that there's more than 35,000 people in ICE custody, and a lot of the immigrant rights advocates and human rights organizations I spoke to said that ICE could be releasing a lot more people. I also spoke to a former head of ICE, John Sandweg, and he agrees with them. I know from experience that at least more than half the people in ICE detention have not committed a serious crime. And there's no other evidence that they pose a threat to public safety. Let's go ahead and let those people out of custody, reduce the threat to the ICE officers and agents, make it easier for ICE to manage the detention population as they also combat the crisis. Even if you're an immigration hawk, nothing I am saying should frighten you. So where does that leave us? And, and where does it leave Manuel and Mire? So I called Manuel the day after ICE announced that someone had tested positive in Pine Prairie, which is where Manuel is being held. 
Hola. Ah, dime. And he told me, ¿Cómo te sientes? Estresado. <laughs> that he was really stressed out, that this case confirms his fears that the virus is inside of this facility, and he's even more worried now. So Manuel is waiting, and he's going to keep waiting until either ICE makes a decision or maybe this court case decides what his future is going to look like. And there are thousands of other people just like Manuel who are waiting in these facilities around the country, waiting to see what's going to happen to them next. That was Laura Morell, immigration reporter at Reveal. As of April 8th, 32 detainees and 11 staff members at ICE detention centers had confirmed cases of COVID-19. During this pandemic, migrant children in custody are facing some of the same dangers as adults. The federal government keeps kids in shelters as they wait to be reunited with a relative or other adult who will sponsor them. The government's Office of Refugee Resettlement decides if and when they get released. Reveals Arabagato has learned about a unique case involving a 16-year-old boy, originally from Guatemala. So, Aura, what's happening with him? Well, he's a victim of labor trafficking, and we've agreed not to name him to protect his privacy. He's been in the U.S. for a year, moving from shelter to shelter. Now, with the pandemic, he's stuck in a shelter called BCFS Fairfield in California, despite having a sponsor, one who's not related to the child, but a family who wants to take him in. I spoke with his attorney, Ricardo de Anda. He's eligible for a special juvenile immigrant visa as an abandoned and trafficked child, but only if he's out of detention. Through contacts in the faith community, Danda found a family in Minnesota that wants to sponsor the boy. They have two adopted children already. The boy's birth parents have signed off. He really wants it too. But the sponsorship was denied by the refugee agency. The email we obtained about this makes clear that the refugee agency didn't even consider the application. So now the child remains in indefinite detention. He has to go through therapy. He's under constant watch, and every little thing that he that he does, every temper tantrum that he may throw, ends up being a major event. For a 16-year-old, it's just depressing. It's very rare that the agency releases a child to a sponsor that's not related and that they haven't met, but it has happened. So now the child is suing the federal government for his release. And this lawsuit is really time-sensitive, right? Yes. The period for which he'll be eligible for a special immigrant juvenile visa, which is a pathway to citizenship, runs out in about a year when he turns 18. Otherwise, the agency will likely turn him over to ICE detention. But, of course, it's also sensitive now because of the pandemic. I know it's almost impossible to speak with kids who are in these shelters, but you got to talk to him recently. That's right. It was actually through his lawyer. We did a, a three-way call, and I got to talk to him for about 30 minutes, which is a lot more than I had hoped to get. Okay. Hola. Hola. ¿Cómo estás? I feel like it's, you know, like any conversation that an adult is going to have with a 16-year-old for the first time. You know, whatever he was telling me, even if it was yes or no or very short answers, it's helpful just to get an idea of what things are like inside. ¿De qué jugaron? ¿Fútbol o qué hicieron afuera? Fútbol. Okay. But he opened up a lot more than I thought that he would. He's indigenous. He's mom. Originally from Guatemala, he grew up near the border with Mexico. You know, he's a smart kid. He speaks his indigenous language, mom. He speaks Spanish and he speaks some English. We we kind of like did a little bit of English back and forth. Yo te voy a preguntar algo en inglés. How are you today? I'm good. Where are you from? ¿De dónde soy? Yes. <laughs> Guatemala. You know, he he like recited the ABCs to me. A B C D E F G H I J K L M N 
But this is another thing that we know about prolonged attention is that there's usually like a three-month cycle for learning. And so he's probably just learned the same things over and over again. And he's been in for a year. This thing that just really sticks with me he said something like, you know, there's good days and there's bad days. And so I asked him what a good day was. And he's like, oh, a good day is, is going out into the world and like having ice cream. We went somewhere where, where there were stores and, you know, he was just out in the world. Que lindo. And I... Much later, asked him, like, well, what's a bad day? Que a veces es más difícil para vos. He's like, oh, when it's rainy and, like, we can't go out. We can't go outside when it rains. And, you know, for, for a kid who's in federal custody and is, like, stuck in this shelter, he could have answered that so many ways. But I think it's something that's, like, such a simple pleasure that all of us are deprived from right now. He is able to go outside and play football, play like soccer, right? Um, this facility can hold 18 kids, but there's only three kids there now. And I was like, you know, th three kids playing soccer seems like a tough game. Like, how do you do that? And he's like, oh, well, you know, there were other staffers that played with us. And so he described six people who are playing soccer uh, and they played a 50 minute long game. I've asked the BCFS Fairfield Shelter, I've, I've asked Headquarters, which is in Texas, and I've asked ORR, the Federal Refugee Agency, about why it is that kids are still playing contact sports during the pandemic, and no one's gotten back to me about it. He did say, like, oh, I washed my hands twice during that game. He knows he's supposed to wash his hands more often. He's saying that, you know, they watch TV every night and they try to be six feet apart. He mentioned a couple of case managers. He mentioned two cooks that come in and out. He has a teacher. He has school every day. He comes into contact with more than a dozen people each and every single day. People who aren't wearing masks, who aren't wearing gloves. And so those are a dozen people who then are interacting with a whole bunch of other people in Fairfield, California, thereby like exponentially increasing the risk. And it just, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and for him in particular, like he has a willing sponsor. My name is Bryce Tash. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Bryce and his husband already adopted two kids. They definitely seem to want him and he definitely seems to want to be there. Our first video chat, he was able to meet my husband, my boys, our dogs, kind of gave him a tour of the house and the neighborhood. We had snow outside at the time. I don't think he'd ever seen snow before and letting him know, you know, he plays soccer. There's soccer fields that are just a block from our house. So just trying to help him to, you know, get some sense of what that might look like. The kids' birth parents are in Guatemala. They, they didn't raise him, but they've signed off on this family sponsoring him. You know, we're not naive. We know that, you know, given the trauma that he's experienced and is continuing to experience, that there's going to be a difficult transition period. Um, but we do know he would be safe. Um, he'd be able to have regular contact with his family in Guatemala. My hope is that any judge would see that that all makes sense, right? That That's my hope. Any reporter is going to tell you that it's really difficult to speak with children who are inside of these shelters. I, I asked him, I was telling him about the radio show, and I was like, you know, just a lot of people in the United States in general like want to know what's going on with kids like you, and what would you want to tell them? And he's like, well... I, I just want people to know that I want to be out in the United States and I want to go to school and I want to study. And that was another thing that just really stuck with me because he's in the United States, but he's stuck in the system. 
So, Ada, where do things stand now? What's going to happen with this 16-year-old boy? The child's attorney is asking the court to compel the refugee agency to consider the sponsor's application. It could move fairly quickly, and it's possible that he's released in, in the near future. But for now, he does the same thing he's been doing for a year. He waits. Reveals Ada Bagato. Ada, thank you. Thank you, Al. While the coronavirus continues to throw people and systems into crisis mode all over the world, there are other massive global issues, like climate change, that haven't gone away. Up next, we go to a village in Alaska that could be underwater in just five years. You're listening to Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. For years, the federal government has been planning for a pandemic like the coronavirus, even running elaborate drills for a scenario just like the one we're in now. Still, federal officials were caught flat-footed when this pandemic actually hit. National stockpiles of medical supplies like masks and ventilators were inadequate, not to mention communication breakdowns between states and various federal agencies. And all of this has me thinking about another looming crisis and how prepared we are to deal with it, whether it's more intense wildfires, increasingly dangerous hurricanes, or food insecurity. Climate change poses one of the greatest challenges we face. Which brings us to a story we first aired last spring. We went to a tiny coastal village in western Alaska above the Arctic Circle, a village that could be underwater in less than a decade. It's called Kivalina. Kids are the first thing you notice in Kivalina. They play outside. They ride all over on snowmobiles and four-wheelers. They seem to be everywhere. What are you guys doing? Hey, Erica. That's reporter Emily Schwing. You're playing? What are you playing? Vampires and humans. Vampires and humans? Are there vampires in Kivalina? No, we're just playing. You're just playing. Okay, okay. The village sits on a sliver of sand and gravel. It's a barrier island just 800 feet wide and about half a mile long, with water on each side. A lagoon sits to the east, and then a vast stretch of trees, tundra, and rolling snowy hills. To the west is the Chukchi Sea, In the winter, the deep blue-black water is covered in ice and extends to the horizon. It's a microphone, right? Don't yell in it, though, because you'll blow my ears. If you do that, I'm listening, so it hurts my ears. Hello. Hello. What? Tell me your name. I'm Ariel. This sea ice acts like a buffer. It protects the village from storms. But in a warming climate, there's not as much ice as there used to be. It forms later in the fall and melts earlier in the spring, allowing giant waves to pummel the island. So bit by bit, flooding and erosion are swallowing Kivalina. And the lives of the few hundred people who live here, including these kids, are in danger. Do you know the the song Lost Boy? I don't know that song. Do you want to sing it for me? I don't don't really know it. Yeah? Is it a good song? Uh, 
I am a lost boy from Neverland, usually hanging out with Peter Pan. <laughs> the surest way to keep people safe is to move them permanently, to relocate the village. In fact, residents here have been asking the federal government for help with that since at least the 1960s. Emily is in Kivalina to find out why more than 50 years later, that still hasn't happened. I bump along in the back of a four-wheeler behind Kelly Holly. She's 30 years old and a mother of five. She has big round cheeks, she wears thick overalls, and she drives pretty fast. About a quarter mile from the center of the village, we stop so Kelly can show me where her Aka is buried. Aka means grandmother in Inupiaq, the indigenous language people speak here. Busy, quiet woman, always there. She used to be cutting caribou or cleaning up. I have a lot of stories, but I don't know which one to tell. <laughs> so, <laughs> On this side of the landing strip, rows of wooden crosses poke out of the snow. They cast long shadows in the springtime sun. Oh, there she is. Louise. Holly, yeah. Oh, your grandmother was born in 1924. Yep. And her daughter is right here, my dad's sister, Ewa Stalker. Yeah, so this is just like your whole family. Yeah. <laughs> Nearly everyone in Kivalina is Alaska Native, Inupiaq. They've lived in this region off the land for more than 10,000 years. Hunting's a way of life and the main source of meat. Seals, caribou, all kinds of fish. I mean, yeah. does it make you sad to think that in a hundred years, maybe all these grave sites might be gone? Yeah. It could happen way sooner. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers estimates that by 2025, all of Kivalina could be entirely underwater in a big storm. Kelly's ancestors didn't choose to live here, at least not permanently. The Inupiat used to spend summers in tents along Kivalina's beach. They'd go fishing and take boats across the lagoon to pick berries. And when winter set in, they'd move inland to hunt caribou for food. In other words, they were semi-nomadic. But in 1905, the federal government built a school on the island and parents were threatened with jail time or losing their kids altogether if they didn't send them to school. Ever since, people have lived on this tiny spit of sand and gravel. We take Kelly's bright red four-wheeler a few hundred feet around the active runway to where the Chukchi Sea meets the island. Last fall, a storm brought gale force winds. Kelly says giant waves eroded an enormous piece of the beach about 20 feet high and 15 feet of land. Going outwards? Yes. Yeah. Okay. She raises her arms above her head to emphasize how big the waves got. The piece of land that washed away was about as long as a pickup truck and as wide as a city bus. It came really close to the runway, maybe like five feet off the runway. So we're like right there. Was it scary? It was scary, yeah. It wasn't to where we have to evacuate, though. There is no evacuation plan that could quickly get people to higher ground. That's because the only way off the island is by boat or plane, which may not be possible during a big storm. As Kelly and I talk, the second airplane of the day arrives with a mail delivery and food to keep the local store stocked. Some of the passengers are coming home from doctor's appointments in Anchorage. It's kind of weird to be... Standing right here on the runway. <laughs> it's March. Everything is buried under a thick crust of wind-buffeted snow. So I can't see the sand or the gravel that washed away. But there are hints at what happened. The tops of giant sandbags, half the size of a small car, peek out of the snow. Local volunteers used heavy machinery to pile them here years ago in an effort to protect the runway. Residents like Kelly have mixed feelings about what to do. I keep thinking, like having double thoughts to move out of Kivalina. But then my family grew here, so I never left yet. Yeah. I'm not thinking to leave now, but I was thinking in the future, maybe I should. Ooh. 
Leaving is complicated. Imagine if your entire community had to move. How would you and your neighbors handle it? How would you decide where to rebuild everything? Schools, houses, local businesses. And how would you pay for it? Way up here, construction costs a fortune. People in Kivalina have been grappling with these issues for decades and working with state and federal agencies to come up with a plan. Find a place where people are safe that also allows for them to preserve their unique culture. But the process is mired in red tape and bureaucracy, and the clock is ticking. Hi. Uh, I'm here to visit with your um, grandmother. Yes, she's home. Okay, cool. Lucy Adams lives in a small gray house that overlooks the Chukchi Sea. She's one of Kivalina's few remaining elders. Outside the door, a wolf pelt hangs in the wind. Next to that, a rabbit pelt and the reddish-brown fuzzy skin cut from the lower legs of a caribou. The rest of the caribou is surely tucked away in a giant chest freezer outside the door. Lucy sits at her kitchen table in front of a sewing machine. Slowly piecing together a new lining for her coat. A parkie, she calls it. She was born in 1933. The coffee mug on her table says so. Aged to perfection. Do you think you live in a good place now? Do you feel safe living here on the island? I can understand you when you talk fast. I talk too fast. (laughs) Sorry. Lucy looks at me sideways, scrunches up her nose, and shakes her head. Her first language was not English. It was Inupiaq. I was asking if you think that this, the island, is a good place to live. Oh, it's not safe anymore. It's eroding. It's getting small. It's not safe to live here. We always just pray to be safe. Until there's a plan and government money to help relocate the village, Lucy is stuck. Stuck here where it no longer feels safe, but also stuck in limbo. It would be good to have running water instead of going back and forth to this water to cook and to wash dishes. Kivalina has never had running water, and since the village needs to be relocated, regional and state leaders won't help install it on the island. This is the case with lots of infrastructure needs. Why beef up a seawall, build a new school, or put in pipes for a water system if it's all going to flood? Lucy and a lot of other people I talk with in Kivalina are really frustrated. They have to keep going without. Without running water, without enough housing, without a school that's big enough for all the kids who live here. By far, though, the thing people are most frustrated about is that they're still here, living on this island where their lives are in danger. Millie Hawley is Kivalina's tribal administrator. Our people have fought and fought and fought. Our parents and our grandparents have fought and fought and discussed and discussed and held meetings over time and again. Millie's face is straight. Her mood is dark. She seems exhausted. For decades, she's been fighting to make relocation happen. Day in and day out with the federal governments, with local governments, with the state, and tell them, hey, we need help here. We need You guys caused us to live here by calling our people to attend school here. In the early 2000s, she thought maybe Kivalina was getting close to finding a way off the island. The whole village worked for at least a decade to agree on a new location. They finally came to a consensus on where they wanted to move, but a 2006 report from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers called the site infeasible. You should have seen and heard Kivalina back then when they got that document. It was like we had a funeral for at least seven years. We grieved. There was no hope. There was no um, no more fight. Uh, it was dismal. The Army Corps report describes the village's site as geotechnically inappropriate and strategically problematic. In other words, the ground was unstable, mostly gravel. And on top of that, climate change threatened to erode the land there, too. But the report says the do-nothing approach wouldn't work either. It says the village definitely needed to move. 
And more than a decade ago, that cost was estimated at $275 million. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska says what's never been clear is where all that money might come from. So a plan may be identified, the practical fiscal reality of how we implement that plan becomes a, a much greater challenge. The money to move Kivalina could be pulled from a tangle of state and federal agencies, likely more than a dozen. I've interviewed people from those agencies for this story, but I didn't get any clear answers about how Kivalina's relocation might happen. One agency, FEMA, even has emergency management in its title. But because of the way Congress allocates disaster response money, the agency doesn't seem fully equipped to respond to a slow-moving disaster caused by thinning ice and sea level rise. In the age of climate change, Senator Murkowski says things need to be streamlined. In my view, there is not one agency that is in charge. That makes this an even larger problem when it's not coordinated. The residents of Kivalina could become some of America's first climate change refugees, but they won't be the last. If the U.S. government can't help keep these 400 people above water, how will it respond as the climate crisis grows? What about when rising seas threaten much larger cities like Miami, Charleston, and New York? I just wanted to ask you um, if you think the federal government is ready and prepared if something were to happen today to deal with, you know, so-called climate change refugees? I would say no. The direct answer is we are not, as a government, prepared. I think most people would say no. Late in the afternoon, as the wind picks up and the snow begins to blow around, I find myself way up on a giant hill on the mainland across the lagoon from Kivalina. Millie Holly and I drove about seven miles to get here. What do you think from up here? Windy. <laughs> <laughs> it was windy. <laughs> we came out here on a brand new evacuation road. After years of fighting, the village is finally getting one. It's still under construction, but it could help solve another problem when it's complete. The road leads to the site of a new school, right where we're standing. Millie says it could be open by 2021. Yeah, it's a whole new place to think about home. One day, Millie wants to see the entire village move up here, where it's safe from the sea. But not everyone likes this location, and there's still no funding to make that happen. In a lot of ways, relocating Kivalina is still just a dream, but Millie's feeling hopeful for the first time in a long while. It's awesome. Yay! You seem so excited. I am. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Because of the coronavirus, construction has been halted on Kivalina's evacuation road. It's anyone's guess when work might pick back up again. Thanks to reporter Emily Schwing for that story. For our next story, we board an icebreaker to Antarctica. Nobody has been where we are right now before. No. Going where no person has gone before in the name of climate science. That's next on Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Today's show looks at some of our greatest challenges, from the coronavirus pandemic to mounting threats posed by climate change. For our last story, we travel to the bottom of the globe, Antarctica. That's the sound of penguins nearby Thwaites Glacier. Thwaites is a huge glacier, more than a half a mile thick and the size of Great Britain. And it's no surprise, it's melting. Many scientists are predicting that Thwaites may be doomed to crumble into the ocean. If that happens, global sea levels could rise up to two feet just from this one glacier, 
But that's not even the bad news, because this glacier is holding back another colossal sheet of ice, kind of like a cork in a wine bottle. If all of it slips into the ocean, sea levels could rise by 11 feet. Few people had ever stepped on Thwaites Glacier, and no one had ever traveled by sea along the glacier's front until recently. About a year ago, a group of scientists spent two months aboard a research vessel to study Thwaites up close. Reporter Carolyn Beeler from the public radio show The World joined them in this first-of-its-kind expedition. My journey starts on a windy day at the end of January at a port near the southern tip of Chile. I walk across a gangplank to board an icebreaker the length of a football field. Here we are. With nearly 60 scientists, staff, and crew. Just walked on the ship. My new home for eight weeks. In port, the Nathaniel B. Palmer feels solid and stable, like a floating college dorm with a cafeteria and bright green flooring. But as we sail south from Chile and through open ocean, 20-foot swells toss it around like it's a little dinghy. This same ocean is responsible for melting Thwaites Glacier. Winds are now pushing warm ocean waters up underneath part of the glacier that extends out into the sea. If that part breaks off, the entire glacier would be vulnerable. Early into our journey, I talked to Rob Larder, the ship's chief scientist, about research suggesting the collapse of Thwaites is inevitable. The suggestion was that Thwaites Glacier had already passed the point of no return, and whatever you do now, the retreat is really inevitable. Rob works for the British Antarctic Survey. He's traveled to Antarctica nearly two dozen times. If they are right, the question then becomes, how fast is it going to retreat? How fast are we going to lose that ice? If Thwaites collapses, it would push up sea levels around the world. Entire neighborhoods in Boston, where I live, could be underwater. From Miami to Mumbai, cities across the globe would need to plan for that sea level rise. But, Rob says... I don't think everybody is convinced that it is necessarily inevitable at the moment. Are you convinced that it's inevitable? I'm keeping an open mind. I think I hope it's not as bad as some of us fear it is, because... I've got teenage children, and uh, I'd like them to live in a world where it's not a disaster scenario. As we sail south, the specter of this glacier looms over me. This research is sobering, but actually doing it is also exciting. No one's ever been in front of the main part of Thwaites Glacier, where we plan to go. Basically, we have no idea what the ocean looks like there. Peter Sheehan works at the University of East Anglia in the UK. He's never been to Antarctica before. Once we get to Thwaites, he'll be measuring how much warm water is reaching it for the very first time. So that is, that is really exciting. That's kind of like harking back to that ancient age of Antarctic exploration. If we're going somewhere that no one's ever been before. No one's ever been there before because the sea in front of much of Thwaites is usually covered in ice. We break through some of that ice en route to the glacier. The ship slams its heavy nose on thick slabs of ice to crack them, then sails through the black gash of open water. The area is nearly ice-free as we get closer to the glacier. The morning we're set to arrive at Thwaites, I set my alarm for 4 a.m. and get out of my bunk to walk up four flights of stairs to the bridge. And there it is, a cliff of ice, six or seven stories tall. The captain and chief mate are silently navigating along its face. It's still dark and foggy, and they use a spotlight to look for stray icebergs. It's snowing, and the beam of the spotlight on top of the ship is lighting up a column of swirling snow. Morning. Peter is working the night shift and comes to look out the window with me. The long wall of white ice in front of us almost glows in the darkness. I didn't expect we'd get so close to it. It's huge. But it looks like lots of the icebergs that we've seen. This just keeps going. Maybe it's the 
the light. It looks kind of mystical. That kind of blue tinge to everything. Yeah, like I'm whispering and I don't know why. <laughs> you can Google image everything these days. So if you asked me to picture an ice shelf 24 hours ago, this is what I'd have thought it would have looked like. But there's something different about seeing it in person. That sense of reverence that, you know, you're whispering and you don't know why. Nobody whispers in front of Google images. <laughs> Nobody has been where we are right now before. No. As the sun rises, the ship wakes up and people stream up here to the bridge. The mood shifts from reverential to celebratory, almost like a party. <laughs> Six decks up, we can't quite see over the top of the glacier. I watch the ice go by for a while with Rob. It's fantastic. This is a, a critical boundary in, in the world today. This is where rapid change is really happening, and we're, we're actually standing and looking at the bit that's rapidly changing. As the day progresses, the mood shifts again to something more somber, because we start to actually see those rapid changes. Ice shelves usually look like vertical cliffs, walls of ice, solid and several stories tall with flat tops, like a butcher block table. But as we travel along the glacier face, Thwaites looks anything but solid. Instead, it's sloping toward the sea, almost like a sand dune. It's curving down gradually rolling off. The actual cliffs are not very high at all. So it doesn't look like ice shelves I've seen before. Like Rob, Lars Buma from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland spends the next few days puzzling over the shape of the ice sheet. He's struck by the parts of the glacier that look jagged and bumpy, like piles of giant rocks covered in blankets of snow. This one looks like big icebergs and ice cubes just frozen together. It looks very chaotic. And did that surprise you? Absolutely. And that surprised me, that even the experts weren't expecting this, that the glacier would so obviously look like it's falling apart. While we're standing up on the bridge, sonar equipment attached to the bottom of the ship is mapping the seafloor below us for the first time. Test one, two. Okay, do you think we can really hear ourselves? Maybe. Late in the afternoon, as fog cocoons the ship, Joey Patterson tries to bounce her voice off the lumpy glacier face in front of us. Whoop! I don't know, did you hear it? I heard it. <laughs> totally <laughs> did. <laughs> we're moving Woo! away, though. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to lose it. Woo! Oh, that was amazing. You can bounce your voice off the glacier, Johan. Yeah, there's an echo. Do it. Let's hear it. Ho! Oh. Oh, we're <laughs> Joey would later tell me this was a weird moment for her, both thrilling and sad. Because this jumbled glacier in front of us, it's almost like staring climate change in the face. For Peter, seeing the jumbled up face of the glacier made climate change feel less academic. The knowing part hasn't changed, you know. I know that we're not in a particularly good position. That hasn't changed. But, yeah, it maybe feels a bit more real now. A few days later, the map of the sea floor right in front of the glacier is filled in. Peter and other oceanographers have measured the temperature of the water in front of Thwaites for the very first time. All of this will feed into models that will predict how soon Thwaites might collapse and how much it will add to global sea levels when it does. But the question that Lars Buma asks is when we're going to do something about it. We have to change policies. The question is, how long will it take? Because the longer we wait, the worse these impacts will be. Back at the beginning of this trip, Chief Scientist Rob Larder told me he was keeping an open mind about whether the collapse of Thwaites was inevitable. At the end of our cruise, I ask him that same question again. There have been studies published suggesting that Thwaites is past its tipping point and its collapse is inevitable. Do you think that is the case? Do I think it's the case? I, I, I think that's more likely than not, yeah. And does he think the entire Mexico-sized piece of ice around Thwaites will also collapse? I, I guess if you're asking me to project hundreds of years into the future, 
unless there's some amazing change where we we manage to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere then i think yeah the west antarctic ice sheet is ultimately doomed yeah very roughly that would mean the storm surges that flooded lower manhattan during hurricane sandy would become permanent the new baseline sea level For Rob, the bigger question now is how fast that'll happen. Carolyn Beeler is a reporter for the public radio show The World. You can find more of her stories from Antarctica at theworld.org slash Antarctica. Our show this week was produced by Stan Alcorn, Pris Keneally, and Catherine Miskowski. It was edited by Brett Myers, Taki Telenitis, and Jen Sheehan, with help from Andy Donahue. Thanks to Peter Thompson and Andrea Crossan at the public radio show The World for working with us on the story from Antarctica, and to the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration and everyone aboard the Nathan B. Palmer Research Vessel. Thanks also to Reveals, Outer Bogato, and Patrick Michaels for their work on the story about ice detention centers. Victoria Baronetsky is our general counsel. Our production manager is Moende Inahosa. Score and sound design by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Najib Amini and Amy Mustafa. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reeve and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Democracy Fund, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, the only way through this is together.